that chemical. What if you drank it? Drank it? It's like saying, what if I swallowed a tire? What if whatever's killing those cows is in the drinking water? That's a soundbite from Dark Waters, a movie that focuses on a horrific case of water contamination in West Virginia. The author of the magazine article that inspired that movie, Nathaniel Rich, has just come out with a new book called Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade. The book delves into the Dark Waters saga and other tales of an increasingly unnatural, natural world. A world where chicken nuggets can be made without killing a single chicken and where extinct species can be replicated in the lab. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science intersects with fiction. Join me and my co-host, science fiction writer Dominica Fetaplace, as we talk with Nathaniel Rich about dark waters, second nature, and the eerie world that we're living in. Will humanity have to change its ways to save the planet? In Second Nature, Nathaniel Rich answers that question with an emphatic yes. But in his view, it's too late to return the planet to the state it was in before we got our hands on it. The scenes in Second Nature illustrate how we have to cope with the world we remade rather than the pre-industrial paradise that many of us dream about. We already have pollutants coursing through our veins, and there's no going back. Listen to Nathaniel Rich lay out his argument in this conversation with Dominica Fetaplace and me. Nathaniel, thanks so much for being on Fiction Science with us. Uh, your book, Second Nature, lays out a wide spectrum of environmental issues. But if I had to summarize the book, I'd probably start with the idea of remaking the world to create a second nature, that there's no such thing as a pristine environment anymore, and we can't go back to the world before human-made pollutants and plastics. For example, you mentioned that almost everybody has a class of pollutants known as PFAS uh, circulating in our blood. Have I got that right? Yeah, you do. <laughs> Unfortunately, you do. It's, <laughs> it's, it's become part of our biological inheritance. It's also it's passed down from, from mother to child. Um, in utero. And it's it's the result of of one of the biggest, I think, criminal corporate conspiracies in American history, um, which is DuPont's use of, of these these man-made chemicals that it knew was was dangerous and toxic and and yet, you know, pumped out just uh, these chemicals in enormous quantities um, through their manufacture of products like Teflon and other, you know, nonstick surfaces um, found in all every aspect of our society now, you know, over the, over 50 or 60 years of exposure to this stuff, it's, it's part of the, the landscape. It's, it's not only in our blood, but it's in the blood of every animal in the world that's been tested for it. And I think that this theme also runs through a lot of the other stories that you tell in the book, the idea that we're leaving an indelible footprint uh, on nature. Uh, does that mean that we're doomed? Does that mean there's really no going back? Well, I think there's no going back, but it doesn't mean that we're we're doomed. I think what's fascinating about this this moment that we're in right now is that for the first time, it's not that the intervention in the natural world is new. We've been doing that from the from the get go. Um, what's new is that we are, I think, finally coming to terms as a society and, and individually with the 
the incredible, the depth and scope of, of the intervention uh, to the point that, as you, as you said, you know, there's really nothing natural that can be found in the natural world by any conventional definition of the term. And so we're now getting to, I think, this next phase of trying to understand, well, you know, is, is there a way to use some of these technologies that have been so destructive to repair the damage we've done? So we're in this moment of tremendous possibility and, and I think of tremendous responsibility and yet also of tremendous danger because there's enormous risk, of course, and when everyone talks about um, purposeful intervention in nature. And so that, that's where the, this, the stories tend to reside on this, this tension between you know, our disillusionment between the, the romantic ideas that we had in the past about the natural world and, and this um, leap into a future of a very purposeful, precise control of nature. A lot has really happened in the past year. Is are th- is there any um, stories in this book that you wish you could update or revise in light of everything that's happened? Well, I have updated and revised some of the stories. Some of the stories in the book I started researching, you know, as, as many as 10 years ago, I think. But in some cases, you know, I've, I've been revising up into the last couple months. I mean, one example is you know, Singapore just in, in December became the first country to authorize uh, the sale of cultured uh, meat. So, you know, chicken meat is the, the first the first iteration made in a lab from the uh, cultured cells of a, of a chicken. And there's a story about a, 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 the, someone in the vanguard of, of doing this work and um, the son of a of a of a butcher from central Illinois who's who's gone into this this futuristic technology. So I have I have adjusted the facts, you know, where they've they've changed. But it was also important to me to not write a book that was um, that could be dated. You know, I didn't want to write a, a book that's you know this is news from news from what's going on right now. Um, I wanted to write stories that were timeless and that that captured something of this moment and weren't too strongly tethered to. Um, you know, developing facts on the ground. And so it's a, it's a different kind of writing than I think a lot of, you know, books written on sort of science journalism. It's more of a narrative. It's, it's a narrative work. And um, my hope is that the stories can be timeless, even as the technologies continue to evolve. Yeah. One of the things I, I thought about uh, was really relevant when I was reading this book to, to especially to this year was you had a story where you talk about, um, the lower ninth ward and the aftermath of hurricane Katrina and how it's kind of a fight against nature. Um, Parts of it seem to have been uh, reclaimed by the forest and that's happening uh, a lot of other places too. It feels like with the decrease of uh, human activity related to the pandemic, it's uh, have you noticed that elsewhere? Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, it, it's, a lot has been written about the lower ninth ward, uh-huh. which became kind of this depressingly became the the you know poster child of of the response to Katrina um, and the failures of of the city's response. Um, you know, remained devastated. It's still devastated um, all of these years later. But but it it also came under this incredible scrutiny from um, this this cadre of scientists, essentially disaster scientists, who came to the lower ninth to study what happens when a landscape is completely wiped out. And so it wasn't just abandoned. It was also eradicated essentially by the floodwaters. And, and, and what followed is this kind of um, completely unusual sort of ahistorical 
biological feeding frenzy where just every species in the in the surrounding areas sort of hijacked on on you know any every truck and uh, car that passed through uh, the neighborhood and and started to annex territory and so I think a lot of you know as with so many things the scientists were sort of ahead of ahead of the curve here and they understood that this this kind of unusual situation what uh, a situation that you know was considered unusual will be increasingly common in the years ahead as um, you know thanks to various climate cataclysms we have these these massive sudden uh, reconfigurations of of nature a lot of the stories in the book kind of have that unfinished quality it doesn't come to a neat end and and another example that i had in mind was uh, the sea stars on the west coast uh, i remember writing about the sea star crisis uh, several years ago and uh, that was a big environmental story up, up here in the Seattle area. The cause apparently uh, is related at least in part to warming oceans and, and the climate changes. Uh, is that your view? Um, and I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts about the impact of uh, the climate challenge on a lot of these environmental challenges. Yeah, I mean, I, I I chose to write about story. You know, the stories that interest me are those that don't have clear resolutions, that have some kind of tension, that that are, uh, in some sense, unfinished, and and in, in many cases can never be finished. Right, we're in this ongoing process. You know, the this this battle with with climate change will go well beyond our lifetimes and and really foreseeable human human future. And so, um, with the sea stars, um, yes, climate change seems to be one of the main factors. And that was always, you know, thought at, at the beginning, you know, but basically a number of years ago, the sea stars all along the Pacific coast from Baja up to Alaska started killing themselves. They started tearing their arms off this gruesome um, kind of sea star, Harry Carey situation. And, <laughs> and they, um, you know, they thought climate was probably related to it, but it didn't really, they couldn't really prove it. And, in part because in some you know warmer waters the sea stars were fine and in colder water some colder waters they were ripping themselves to pieces and so the eeriness of the of the situation and the and the anxiety caused by the fact that there you couldn't really point to a clear you know single factor and and even a combination of factors has never really has still not been settled on i think is very much part of the the spirit of our times you know we have the sense that there are these tremendous changes underfoot many of them devastating uh, and gruesome, frankly. And we, we, you know, the solutions are evasive or they're, they're long-term in ways that are, are frankly unsatisfying um, when you see something like a bunch of sea stars um, dying in this gruesome way. And that tension, uh, I think, really has infiltrated um, and the eeriness has infiltrated our our moment now. So it really informs, I think, the way we live today. And that's that's you know living with that that uncanny uh, sense of, of of transformation of our of the world that you know as we know it I think is very much you know that's the theme of this of the book that's that's what I wanted to to explore in greater detail and and yes part of the the creepiness of it is the fact that it's it's just unresolved and and perhaps unresolvable. 
We recently spoke with Michael Mann about his book, uh, The New Climate War. And I don't know if you, you're aware, but he does mention you and, and some of your previous works, uh, specifically Losing Earth. And uh, his criticism is that you're kind of letting the fossil fuel industry and climate skeptics off the hook uh, with this idea that it, it, the climate uh, war was already lost. Uh, many years ago, and and uh, we don't know exactly what we can do about it. Have you heard those criticisms? And and what do you say to people who uh, think, oh, we really need to do more about climate, and and uh, don't let anybody off the hook? Yeah, th- I mean that kind of. I, I didn't know that uh, he wrote about me. I mean that that kind of criticism is baffling to me. And my only response is that he probably didn't read the book because that's I don't make that argument anywhere in in the book and. It's a kind of tragic thing when um, activists uh, like himself take um, work that uh, and use use work as a kind of way of, of bolstering their agenda. Nowhere do I say that you should let the oil and gas industry off the hook. Of course, I mean I have a, a pretty frank denunciation of uh, you know I, I accuse them of crimes against humanity in the pages of Losing Earth. So that it's hard for me to even rebut those statements. It's, it just seems that he didn't probably have the patience to read the book. Um, on the other, and, you know, and then there's also the point about uh, kind of fatalism. I, it's also nowhere in the book. In fact, it's, I, I make the opposite point. So I would just um, hope writers have more integrity than, than that to attack um, work not on its own terms. So I'm, I'm generally confused by that. I, I did, you know, there was a, there was a sort of criticism of of losing earth along those lines from activist community i think the source of it my best interpretation is the source of it is that that's a book about a period um in the 1980s 1979 to 1989 before the oil and gas industry had launched this cohesive uh industry-wide attack on climate change policies and it started this process of, of disinformation uh propaganda and I think for a certain type of activist, and certainly my man who's been, you know, had his career threatened by, by those people, um, is very touchy on the subject. I think anyone who, who dares to write about it, an aspect of the problem that lies before this period that they're focused on, which is, of course, critical, 1989 to the present, it's our current moment, um, is seen as a kind of um, a failure of, of, uh, of kind of message of messaging. Um, and it's it's disappointing to me that 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 kind of um, that that kind of like message um, censorship is is sort of you know that you that if you're not telling the part of the story that they want to focus on that you're somehow telling lies or you you know and, and I think it's important to understand why we failed in the period before you had this massive um, pushback from the oil and gas industry. Um, otherwise, I don't. I don't think we can really have a serious conversation about how we're going to move forward um, if we deny some of our our failures before um, it, the situation became so embattled. One of the more recent uh, developments in the history of the climate challenge is the involvement of billionaires like Jeff Bezos with the Climate Pledge and Bill Gates with the Breakthrough Energy Ventures and getting involved in in backing ventures that they think uh, will make the climate situation better, even if it involves, for example, nuclear power. 
what sort of role should billionaires have? There are some people who argue that uh, they should be paying more taxes instead of uh, mounting their own personal campaigns. I, I, I'm really curious in how you come down on that. Well, I mean, as with everything related to climate change, we need the maximum <laughs> the maximum from everybody, right? And so, yes, billionaires should pay more taxes. Um, if billionaires are going to make climate uh, an important part of their agenda, great. I mean, one of the one of the a story in Second Nature on this theme that that I found you know fascinating to report is is a story of Aspen, Colorado. I was going to say Aspen, um, yeah, yeah. They're probably you know one of the richest places in the communities in the world. Um, maybe outside of Abu Dhabi or someplace like that, and uh, uh, heavily, you know, populated by oil and gas magnets from also from all over the world who who have, have these estates there. And there's a guy there. The um, I think his title is vice president of sustainability, something of that order at at Ski Company, the the biggest you know business in Aspen. And his job is essentially just is to stop global warming. Uh, to make sure that that snow continues to fall on the Aspen resort. Um, and his argument is that Aspen uh, should lead the way on climate because they have the money to do so and and the time and the resources. And it's, you know, there's a lot of ironies that that in there, right? And there's a lot of hubris in there. And yet they have succeeded at a lot. Uh, certainly it's not enough for just a bunch of billionaires to try to save the world. And you always have to to doubt their seriousness um, and follow through, but I don't think it's a bad thing for for billionaires to 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 try to do their part. Although, yes, of course, it's not it's not sufficient. It's not it's not enough. You know, we need more than that. And an, another issue that I found really interesting was the role that you see for genetic engineering, uh, whether it might be able to address a lot of the uh, biological problems that are laid out in the book. I, I was particularly interested in the discussion of using synthetic biology to, for example, break down uh, pollutants in the environment or uh, this whole chapter that was devoted to de-extinction, to bringing back species and whole ecosystems that, that have passed away in perhaps an altered form. You know, you're never going to bring back the passenger pigeon, but you could bring back a pigeon that is kind of like the passenger pigeon. Same with the woolly mammoth. Maybe it's not exactly a woolly mammoth, but it's a cold weather elephant. Um, could genetics get us out of the environmental messes that we've made for ourselves? Uh, and are there other strategies or scientific advances that are going to be playing a leading role? Well, there's no silver bullet, certainly. But but what's interesting, what's fascinating to me about the de-extinction movement and, and more more broadly, the this idea of using genetic engineering and genetic technologies to rescue species and bring back species is that the people who are, you know, the, the greatest proponents, people like, you know, Stuart Brand and his organization, um, Revive and Restore, which is spearheading a lot of this work, they um, they don't speak about these interventions as um, in, in terms of like, you know, futuristic sci-fi technologies. They, they're, they actually channel um, the really the, the foundational thought of the environmental movement as we know it, which is, is the earliest conservation thinking. Um, so they are, you know, if you hear them speak about why they're doing these things, they're talking, you know, they, they're they like right out of the pages of George Perkins Marsh or, or Ernst Haeckel. I mean, they're talking about um, restoring a balance between 
uh, human human beings and 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 you know ecosystems that they, they, they emphasize um, restoring biological diversity um, and um, you know their value system is this is, is almost this antiquated these antiquated I- ideas that I, I think are 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 crucial but but have largely been you know passed over. And even while they're talking about these extremely futuristic things, because as you say, they're not, you know, it's sort of a euphemism to say they're going to bring back, you know, the passenger pigeon or the woolly mammoth. They're talking about creating new uh, man-made species in a lab that will fulfill the same ecological niche um, of, of species that we've, we've killed off. And I think that's fascinating. And it's, you know, there's something obviously it strikes you as kind of creepy or, or disturbing or, or crazily hubristic at, at first encounter with it. But actually, I mean, there, there's a method to the madness and there's a rationale. And I think it, one has to get, we have to become more used to this idea of directed uh, intervention, um, which after all has been, has been with us since the beginning of, of conservation. You know, the, the most traditionalist conservation folks still talk about, you know, management of, of, of nature, land management, which is again, another euphemism for essentially controlling the conditions of an ecosystem. And, and so it's the same, it's the same kind of work that's going on, but it's just using technology that's far more advanced and, and precise. Back to the first chapter of your book, it's about the uh, contamination of this community by the DuPont Chemical Company, and that was turned into a movie in 2019, uh, Dark Waters. What was it like seeing your work adapted for the screen? It was really exciting. Um, it, you know, it's just, <laughs> they did a tremendous job. It's, they, they turned a story of, um, you know, about a, a lawyer essentially reading millions of pages of documents um, into this fast-paced thriller and uh, and a story also that takes place over decades really um, but it's one of my one of my favorite directors Todd Haynes um, directed it and I thought Mark Ruffalo did a beautiful job as Rob Ballad who's a very hard character to play a, a you know conservative quiet um, you know unemoting uh, corporate lawyer who discovers this, this massive, um, you know, conspiracy by, by the world's biggest chemical com- company. And so it was, it was thrilling, actually. It was, it was, it was thrilling to see. And I thought they did a, a wonderful job with the, with the film. Is there a chapter in this book that you would like to see adapted for a film? Like what would, after the first one, what's your second choice for the movie uh, adaptation? That's a good question. <laughs> The immortal jellyfish, I have just a soft spot for it. It's, it's a story about this wonderful man, uh, Shin Kubota, who's a Japanese marine biologist, and he studies this species of jellyfish called the immortal jellyfish, nicknamed the immortal jellyfish, that um, at the end of its life cycle essentially starts again, regenerates, and, and can live uh, over and over again. Um, and you know, he and, and Kubota believes that we we can use their these genetic tricks uh, to uh, increase human longevity and even to achieve human immortality. Um, and he's devoted his life to this idea, and and sort of more crucially, he's devoted his life to instilling um, in 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 humanity an appreciation of of the natural world because he feels until we have all developed a kind of ethic of uh, ecological ethic, essentially that we don't deserve to be immortal. And so he has this whole second career as a, 
kind of um, uh, a singer and and uh, promoter of the immortal jellyfish, and he dresses up in these jellyfish costume and sings these beautiful ballads to nature that he's written. And so I don't know. I think there's some kind of Disney story there to be found. Yeah, I think the immortal jellyfish would be a great science fiction novel. And you're no stranger to science fiction. You wrote a novel that delved into the mathematics of catastrophe and worst case scenarios uh, called Odds Against Tomorrow. And now that you've written Second Nature, how would you rank our odds? And did you come across any other twists in your research that would make for good science fiction plots? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about Odds Against Tomorrow is that everything in it is um, real. <laughs> all, all, you know, it's about a, 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 a risk analyst whose job is to essentially obsess over worst case scenarios. Um, and one of them ends up happening, which is a storm hits, hits New York City. And I was very careful in that book, you know, in this age of, of Google, one can't just, you know, um, expect that readers won't, you know, look everything up and, and, um, you know, and I, I find that, that yes, a lot of, a lot of the things I, I wrote about in second nature probably wouldn't survive an, uh, an editor for in a, in a novel because it's so, so outlandish and, and, and wild. And, and in, in, in fact, that's why I wrote this, you know, the stories in second nature, I felt like had to be nonfiction because you wouldn't believe it if it was if it was embedded in a novel are there any particular technologies or uh states in human nature that you think would make a good uh i don't know whether it would be a science fiction murder mystery or a comedy uh i'd love to hear if there's anything that a future novelist or short story writer like dominica might be able to use (laughs) I mean, there's a lot. I, I mean, I think the story about cultured chicken and, and the future of, you know, there's, I, I keep thinking of this, um, this promotional video that uh, Just, which is this, um, the company that, that, that's making this, this uh, cultured chicken product um, has, has put up on, on YouTube that has this segment where a bunch of um, sort of attractive hipsters are having an outdoor, like, barbecue cookout and they're eating these chicken nuggets that have been like lightly dusted with with salt and and then there's a chicken walking around them on the on the in the field and there's a graphic that shows that the the chicken um is called ian and that the chicken nuggets they're eating are also ian so they're eating the living they're eating the chicken that's (laughs) hanging out with them um because of course it doesn't have to be killed in order to be cultured and that 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 vibe like that tone i feel like is the tone that's that's the deep tone of our moment and i think if if science fiction or or just you know any any kind literary fiction uh, about this period um i think you have to you have some responsibility to tap into that eeriness um uh, or or you risk not really capturing where where we're at right now now I have to know all this talk about the cultured meat. Have you tried it? And if so, what did it taste like? This is this was my one major pandemic disappointment with this book because I I had to cancel a trip to taste the chicken. And you can't the only place you can now get it is Singapore. So I have not yet tried it, but you know, they've there's not one there's not one uh, version of it. They essentially it's a laboratory where they pump out a million different iterations of it, and you can essentially program the chicken meat to taste 
how you want it to taste in the same way that, you know, McDonald's can change the the taste of its French fries or, you know, Dior can change the scent of perfume. Um, so they're constantly adjusting it. And, you know, the chef that I wrote about, um, he spends all day just eating different prototypes of chicken in the lab every, every day. So yeah, maybe there's a way to have, you know, cultured chicken, immortal jellyfish, um, and I don't know, a reconfigured uh, Louisiana coastline somehow in some kind of um, operatic science fiction uh, realm. What are you working on now? Uh, right now I'm working on a novel. Um, I'm, I, you know, I feel that a lot of the themes, you know, these themes that I've been writing about in Losing Earth and in Second Nature uh, are still with me, but I feel like I've, I've with the, these two books together, I feel like I've, I've done, I feel like they, they serve as a, as a statement, you know, as my statement on these, these themes and they, they go as far as I think one can go or as far as I can go uh, in nonfiction. And so I think I'll continue to, you know, be fascinated by these ideas and struggle with them and, and try to work through them, but I'll probably do so in, in fiction um, for the foreseeable future, more than, more than journalism or, or um, nonfiction. So is this next work going to be a historical novel or is it going to be a future science fiction novel? Uh, can you give us a few more hints about coming attractions? Yeah, I, um, I learned my lesson with Odds Against Tomorrow about writing uh, novels set in the future. And that, that book was very dangerously just the near future. And, and as it turned out, you know, Hurricane Sandy hit New York City as soon as I'd finished a novel about a, a hurricane hitting New York City. And so I'm, that, that was a little too terrifying of an experience. But I, um, I have, yeah, it's a, it's a novel set in the recent past. And um, it, it's about some of these themes. It's about some different ones as well. And, uh, but, you know, I feel, I feel like you can't really uh, write a realistic novel about the present without tapping into the weirdness of this moment and, and the weirdness of our, of this transition transitionary stage we're in with, with the natural world of, you know, coming to terms with the damage we've done and trying to make sense of, of how to, how we move forward. Um, and so I think that idea will haunt the novel, uh, you know, in the same way that I feel like if you read novels, say of, you know, around, written around the time of World War II, um, even if they're not about soldiers or, you know, the Western Front or what, what have you, it's, you still have, um, you know, the, you're still, they're still haunted in some way by it. And, and I feel that's true of the literature of our, our time as well, that if you're, if there's not some sense or awareness of, you know, climate change of this in, in massive environmental transformation, um, you're not really telling the story. And that doesn't mean you have to even use the words climate change or use the word, you know, or talk about any of these issues. It's more, it's almost more of a mood or a, a, a sense that, that I think one has to be attuned to. Well, I think I can speak for Dominica in saying that we were fascinated to read about the weirdness of our modern day world in second nature. And we'll look forward to more weirdness to come. Thanks so much Thank for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great, great talking with you both. For links to Second Nature and Nathaniel's other writings, including the New York Times Magazine article that led to the movie Dark Waters, check out my Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. 
We've put together a bonus podcast in which Nathaniel sizes up the state of modern fiction and provides plenty of his own book recommendations. There's a link you can follow to reserve a spot for Nathaniel's virtual speaking engagement for Town Hall Seattle on April 5th. And while you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. Just follow the link from Cosmic Log. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.